Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, we're going stateside to be joined by Keyson Patel, the CEO and founder of M&A Science and Deal Room. Before I get Keyson to introduce himself, uh, I've got a couple of words down to let the audience know who Keyson is. Keyson was a merger and acquisition advisor for 10 years, in which he sold larger companies such as commercial banks and hotel chains. And then in 2012, he noticed teams lacked efficient technology to manage deals and created deal room and merger and acquisition life cycle management platform. So for those in business, which is this audience who are interested in positioning their business to the sell to get more from it, this podcast is for you and Keyson, you're welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. Typical fashion of the show, Keyson, we spend the first couple of minutes, three, four minutes getting to know the guest. Then we jump into the good part. So no different with you from my research. I, and if I speak fast, tell me to slow down. Um, from my research, I can see that you, sorry, from LinkedIn, I can see that you've been in Chicago since 2003, but I know that you also went to university outside, outside of Chicago in Nebraska. So tell me, first of all, where did you grow up? Yeah, I was born in Chicago, grew born up in Chicago. small town, Nebraska, and uh, had a nice experience of that small town life up until about 19 where I did some of my school in Nebraska and then ended up coming out to Chicago. Um, boy, was what was life 2000? like growing up in Chicago? Any favorite standard memories kind of pre 18 years old? Pre in, in Nebraska side, pre 18 years old, small town. It was, it was interesting. It was, um, you, you know, you got to find things to do. I think that that's the main challenge for you over there. Coming over to Chicago is a transition. You're in a big city with too many things to do. So uh, it, it, it's funny. Sometimes I, I sit out here. I got a nice balcony that overlooks the river downtown Chicago, and uh, just think to myself, if I'd ever go back and just uh, you know shake my head a little bit, come back to reality. So it, it's 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 been a good run here in in being in the city, and uh, definitely enjoyed it. It's been a great platform to build a career and to get a business started. I've I've never been. I work with a couple of colleagues over in Chicago. I've been I I've been to many states uh, in America, but not Chicago yet. Um, one more question before I move on from the earlier days. People can usually pick or point to a handful of people. I say handful, kind of fewer than five, who had a massive impact on their early years that's helped them become the person they are today. Whether uh, now an acquaintance, still a close friend, a teacher, a parent, a relative. Does anyone spring to mind for you? You know, that's a, it's a good, I feel like there's a lot of people along the way that you got to be curious. You got to put yourself out there and talk to people being able to listen. I, I'm not a big believer in this single mentor that's there to guide you, but you can have quite a few mentors. You need to approach people in that right way. And people that have hit the level of success, be surprised how willing they are to turn around and help others achieve their success. So I, I was fortunate in that journey to have a series of folks that I've been able to approach. I remember one gentleman, uh, Mike Bischoff in particular, when I was struggling trying to build a residential real estate career and didn't like it. I hated it. 
I couldn't connect with the clients and the, the nature of the sale being more emotional than financial. And I noticed he was the only person in the firm at the time, which was a rather large firm I worked at that was doing commercial real estate and got to learn from his experience and got his encouragement to go pursue what I was more interested and passionate about, which was selling businesses. And that led me to eventually moving on to another firm, a little boutique m advisory shop where I got my feet into the industry, got a great amount of experience working in the small crappy shop because I had to do everything end to end. And a year later, I started my own practice that I built up over a decade that uh, allowed me to really explore so many different industries when you're in that field, learn about a variety of different businesses, primarily focused in working in hospitality and small financial institutions. Uh, but just learned a tremendous amount, got very familiar with the industry, understood the problems that were present in the industry, but then had an opportunity, as we see all this emerging technology, to see things that were happening in the software side, how these software engineers were using these cool project management tools to drive better efficiencies in building software, and took the ideas as inspiration to build a project management tool for managing mergers and acquisitions which led to starting Deal Room in 2012. Mm. And that uh, journey wasn't easy. I think for the first five years, it was just a lot of brutal struggles that we can talk about a lot of uh, failures in, in that journey and, and lessons learned. But it was all, all for the greater good. Le learned about building an engineering team, managing engineers, getting to product market fit. Um, and, and then the, the whole go-to-market with the, the industry. Um, I, I think that led to other opportunities when if you do it right, you'll find more than what you were looking for, uh, which we found that there was this much bigger problem in the industry that the industry itself was highly fragmented and lacked standardization, best practices. We took it as an opportunity to help solve that problem, which was the inspiration for starting a podcast. And in 2012, we started a podcast, M&A Science, with the goal of utilizing as a platform to enable practitioners to share lessons learned so we can in turn find the patterns, identify the proven techniques in the industry, document them, and build content around it to help other practitioners learn, start standardizing, standardizing practices. And that's really evolved our business to have several different business lines today. You were... Inventing the inbound method before HubSpot invented it themselves then, if you were as early as 2012. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with Sandler Training. There's a, there, there's a franchise open in Chicago, actually run by Bill Bartlett. Uh, so you're, great, you're familiar with Sandler Training. I don't need to explain. Depending on the franchise, there's a home office with deals, deals with corporates and individual franchises can position their business to deal with whatever. They can do corporates themselves. They can do leadership training, sales training. They can work with business owners in their local region. If we focus on the business owners in the local region, there's a particular book written by the CEO, Dave Matson, which is around 13 blind spots that can hold back an otherwise healthy business. And I'm not going to go down the route of the 13 blind spots, but um, there's potential blind spots that can reduce the uh, price someone can get for their business. Things like if they don't build a bench of the business or so the business is positioned that if they lose someone important, someone else can come in and replace them. Uh, not having a hiring process, not focusing on lead generation, not build positioning the business to uh, um, to work without the CEO, so the CEO can remove him or herself when they exit the business. 
when you look at the last kind of decade and going forward, is there one specific, let's label it a blind spot, that you see businesses fall victim to that if they fixed, they'd be able to get a better price when they went to sell their business or thought about the process of selling their business? It's a lot of little things. It's a lot of preparation that you need to do. And that that's the, the challenge. You need to do this stuff early, earlier the better. And I, I think you need to even really start pushing the needle on this a year ahead of time where you spend the time to do operational cleanup, book cleanup, really prepare things. Because when you take a business out to market, you're going to deal with a variety of buyers. You're going to deal with some unsophisticated buyers and some highly sophisticated buyers. And they're going to go in and they're going to come in with a magnifying glass and look at all these little pieces of your business to find out where the risks, where the things that look off look wrong. And you may have one thing that you overlooked from years ago that's just continued and it's going to be a deal breaker. So it's, it's, it's important to get somebody that has experience doing deals to help you with that preparation. For sure. There's a variety of different folks out there. I think somebody on the operational side would be really good. Maybe somebody in corporate development or, or something of that sort could uh, be a valuable resource in helping prep a company for sale. I, I spoke with uh, a guy in the UK. He's, uh, he sold a business for eight million pounds maybe three, four years ago, and has built up a rather large online following. His name's Mike uh, Mike Winner. And he said that he went into business with his mates and they had their three-year plan to build it and sell it for £10 million in three years. And they didn't hit that, but still £8.5 million is not bad. Um, but one of the things that he did was he worked backwards and always stayed on the radar of the potential buyers. So I, I'd say I always look at a long and short game, right? If you are going to sell a business, you could run a short game process just purely to financially maximize that price, mm-hmm. but you would run an auction process. You'd work with an investment bank to run a competitive auction process and get top dollar. The more competitive it is, the higher it's going to get bid up and you'll, you'll maximize that return. Um, there has been a shift in the past decade where people are much more considerate about the people and the greater good of the transaction. What's that home going to be like for the business? Are they going to a right home with that's best for the business to survive and thrive? And, and that changes things because now you're, you're, you're more inclined to play the long game mm. where you're going to spend the time to understand the market, understand, who those potential suitors would be as an acquirer and, and get to know them. And usually in these large corporations, there's a department called corporate development and it's a, a small team that's in charge of inorganic growth strategies, which oftentimes include acquisitions. And most of the time they're fairly open to having those conversations as part of their job to know the market, know the potential opportunities especially when they can buy a business without dealing with a highly competitive process. And now just like in life, right? If you rush to make a decision, you're more likely to make a bad decision versus if you take the time and put the consideration in, you can spend the time to get to know each other. And maybe there's things that come ahead where you may uh, just build a relationship, share some of the growth, share some 
just respected uh, industry insights. You may even look at doing a partnership initially, and we've seen that often where partnerships can evolve into an acquisition. So playing that long game, it, it's it, there's in some ways benefits for the businesses coming together in a healthy way that leads to a better outcome in the long run versus running this highly competitive process just to make the sale for top dollar. So I, I think it's looking at that and understanding what's the most important. Yeah. Um, and if you do it right too, with the company, you can spend the time to understand the points of value, especially if you're selling to a larger organization, uh, a strategic, um, that, that has a strategic lens on why they'd buy your company and how they're going to get value from it. And to spend that time to help them understand it, you could also build a case on the value of your business that would be comparable to what you would derive from an auction process. So, um, you know, there, there's some different views in how you play it, but I, I look at it as playing the short game or long game. I, I think in some ways you can always start with the long game and that that should be part of the role of CEO of the company with an exit in mind is to start understanding who the potential acquirers would be and get those conversations going, get on the radars. Uh, then if you come to that time and you decide it, it may be more uh, inclined to do an auction process, then you'd, you'd go through that. You'd find you know maybe three to six investment banks to come and pitch for your business where they would do a presentation give you a, a range on an expectation of value but and understand what their industry experience is what type of sales they've worked with and also their relationships on who they actually know in the industry and could get you in front of that may have been difficult for you to get in front of i imagine the question what are the risks comes into the head of the owner and the internal team that are kind of building the business over a period of years to, to sell it, comes into the head at some stage. So you being the expert, what are some of the big biggest risks risks in M&A? The nature of M&A, you are opening up the kimono to a lot of sensitive information in your company. You have your trade secrets, just essentially the secret sauce of the business. Your, the, your access to the list of employees you have, your customer agreements. There's a lot of information. So handling that in the right way. Uh, you, and that's where it's helpful to, at the very least, have an advisor, especially having a good legal advisor. The last thing you want to do is get the general counsel that you use for decades with your company. Uh, when it comes to M&A, you want somebody that's done M&A in your space. Mm. And they, they could help with that. Um, I think investment banks can also help with that as well, but making sure that there's, there's the nature of managing sensitive information, uh, and that's your agreements with your confidentiality agreements and how you handle that from the beginning of the transaction. It also sets the tone for what it's going to be like working with the organization and how you come to terms on handling the confidentiality of the transaction. And then as, as you progress through, um, you know, the risks are just having stuff that could come back and, and really hurt the organization with that sense of information being uh, sent around. And when you work with larger companies, it, the nature of it even becomes greater with the nature of the transaction itself. Uh, on a small company, it may affect if the word gets out that the deal is going to happen. It can create concerns with your employees. It could sort of drop morale. On a larger company, if it goes out to in a public company, it goes out to the market it could really throw things off and create some havoc uh, if it gets out there too early. 
so that there there is some some risk involved with it and, and it's all managing the the information um you know getting people to to really keep the, the keep the confidentiality there make sure the the deal doesn't leak early mm. and in that process of merger uh, mergers and accusations um for those who don't know what is a sales memorandum and why would someone selling a business need one? Um, so we have a few agreements. We have a, a non-disclosure agreement. Yep. So that's basically us agreeing about how we're going to handle the sensitive information. And there's, there's a lot that goes into that because there's information I'm going to share. Are you going to destroy it afterwards? Whatnot. There's that. But then there's also this uh, residual memory information because you may look at some in document or some, some of our trade secrets and it's going to be in your head. You know, how, how do I protect our business from that, from you walking off and building a competitive product and whatnot. Then you move into uh, an investment bank may use an indicator of interest if they're running that auction process to stage a process where they'll do some broad marketing and get folks to put a formal uh, commitment to their interest. They're saying, Hey, I'm raising my hand. I'm, putting my interest in there. They may sometimes require a range of value to know where they're at. And then they, they'll move them to the next stage where they provide additional information for them to do their evaluation, to come up with a, a value for the business in which they present in another document, a letter of intent, which is very commonly used in all different types of transaction. Um, a letter of intent would outline the general terms of doing a deal, um, they, there could be some binding elements, non-binding ele elements w with the way that those um, uh, letter intents are structured. And then the alternative language is term sheets for it. And I'm not going to get into the nuances around the differences from it. We'll, uh, we can interview a lawyer for that. And then that, when you move into that, we got you go through a formal diligence process. We're really doing a deep dive with your team, maybe different functional leaders in your organization to make sure what's represented is accurate, identify the risks in the transaction. If they're planning to integrate the company, do some integration preparation at that time. You may work with some external consultants to help with this diligence. It could be a, a quality of earnings, they call Q of E, where they really dig into the financials and make sure that the financials are represented correctly and, and make some of those adjustments that, that may need to happen. And then um, you move through that process so you get to a level of comfortability to close in which you either execute, and maybe a little different there uh, in Europe, yep. is a purchase agreement, um, which comes in two forms, either a stock purchase agreement or an asset purchase agreement. Uh, purchase a stock purchase agreement in which you're buying the stocks of the company, taking over the entity, running it. Then you have a, an asset purchase agreement which are buying the assets and moving it over to your organization. You know, stock purchase, usually small businesses, tends to be an asset purchase. You're buying the assets. The concern is if you're buying the stock, there could be potential liabilities. You're picking up more liabilities and mm -hmm. so forth. Uh, when you're working with some larger multinational companies and uh, you know maybe a uh, nature of some visa visa employees, doing an asset purchase becomes trickier because you essentially are terminating the employees in one entity, rehiring in the other organization. Uh, in those cases, it may actually make more sense to do a stock purchase agreement. So th there are some avenues to go through and why it's important to have good lawyers in place that uh, know their stuff.
Well, there's a lot that you do with, I know you've mentioned your podcast already. Uh, there's a number of, I'm looking at my screen here, there's a number of resources on your website and I'll get the deal room in a moment. But what I also noticed was you've got the MA science.com website. And what stood out to me was one of the guys that I've been receiving emails from for the last probably three years that I hold in high regard is Harry Kramer. And he's one of the guys that's on your website delivering one or two of the sessions, which made me uh, have a big, massive smile because you've got some really good people delivering some really cool sessions on your web website. So I'll leave links to your mnascience.com website, also a number of the resource pages on the deal room site. But what I've noticed is I've only mentioned the word deal room. I've not given you the opportunity to kind of deliver the 30-second commercial. You'll do a much better job than I will because you're the owner of the company. <laughs> so the mic is yours. Uh, yeah, I mean, Deal Room was our first and still main business line. It's a M&A lifecycle management solution. We primarily sell to corporations, 1 billion market cap or greater corporations, and also private equity-backed roll-ups. They use the software to manage the whole lifecycle of deal from sourcing, through diligence, through integration, all the components, the data, having it all in one database. But the, the main outcome is you have people able to collaborate and stay aligned on the highest priority tasks throughout this transaction as it continues to get more complicated and you bring in more stakeholders and it becomes more important that you keep everybody on the same page. Um, we've added these other lines when you look at MA Science because our companies become a hybrid company of education and technology. So this podcast, we've evolved it to have a series of publications. We run a, an academy program. We're big advocates for those interested in a potential career in M&A to explore, provide them the instructional training so that they can learn. And there's so many different fields in M&A. I feel like a lot of people default to stereotype of the investment banking role, mm. working the 100 hours on spreadsheets and doing financial analysis. But when you look at what M&A is, one, it's the largest transactions in the world that happen. And two, it's the largest magnitude of change management an organization could possibly endure that impacts every little functional component of that company. So when you look through that, there's a lot of M&A roles that cover that whole spectrum to make that change happen successfully. For sure. I'll leave links to both websites below. Um, you create a lot of content and with creating a lot of content, what I found, particularly in the content that I've created or worked with others to create, there's a number of topics that just don't seem to, they seem to turn people off or not people not tune in, even though they're important topics. I was chatting to a sales leader in the UK from a company with a thousand plus employees. He's the VP of me. And he said, anytime the word accountability is in the sentence, people just tune off. I've talked to other CEO of a smaller company. And he says, whenever he puts out content with the word storytelling, people tune out. So for you in your world, what's one topic that you wished people held in higher regard that they didn't tune out when that word was in, when you put out the podcast or the video or whatever? Hmm, that's a good question. I, you know, the first thing that I think about is values. I think the more I've done these interviews, I've come to realization. We look at the decade theme as a shift from a financial focused M and a process to a people focused M and a process. And it should start early with alignment on values. If the two CEOs or leadership can get together and have an understanding of their organization's values and be able to extend that into understanding their leadership approach, the culture, 
and get a good sense of how these organizations would come together, work to well, work well, if these elements complement each other, or if there's some stark differences that would conflict, would help them have a better uh, view into what, how successful the deal will actually become. Two final questions for you. First one is, and sometimes this this takes people a couple of seconds to answer. What's your personal definition of success? It's the the value you set out to create. So I, I look at it as one, your ability to create value, yep. right? Success, you, you need to have that. That's your skill. The success is the impact you made. You know, for us, success is by the impact we're making in our industry. Our industry is antiquated. They're running on old systems. A lot of them are still using Excel-based processes or run billion-dollar transactions, old waterfall practices that are highly inefficient. And if we can work with the organization and bring them up, to the modern agile based with great technology. Uh, that's, that's what that's success for us. The success is how much of that can you bring to the industry? How much of that value did you create? Cause when you can take somebody from there to this, this area that you, you defined as success, that that's when there's, it's a massive amount of, of impact that you can make. Uh, and that's what creates value for that. And you'll, you'll know it. They'll tell you, they'll tell you about how much efficiency they gained how much uh, it, it's helped them so that they've been able to accelerate their goals and achieve better outcomes. So it's very much around that ability to create value that in turn generate values for your customers. Mm. And final question then for you, if you had a magic wand and were the final decision maker in adding a new subject to either the elementary cycle or the high school cycle, what would it be and why? Empathy. I, I think that's the one thing you don't see taught in schools and it's one of the most powerful skills as a leader mm. and I think as a human to really connect with somebody to get a sense of how they see things get get in their head understand how they look at things more importantly how they feel and why they feel that way and when you can enter these meetings a lot of times we have our own objectives that come front and center put it away you know, put your objectives away, uh, you know, your biases, your, your assumptions on what you know, you know, I could talk to you about things and you may think I'm the expert at M&A, but can I put all that away, assume I know nothing or whatever I know is wrong and really intently listen to you mm. and understand your goals and what you're trying to achieve and align myself to help you achieve those goals. Um, that, you know, just being able to connect with somebody in that way goes such a long ways. You know, that empathy, even when we have conflict resolutions, we don't agree on certain topics. Maybe it's a, a little trivial thing of, you know, we have a wall we want to paint. I want to paint it blue. You want to paint it red. And we can argue this thing to death. But if I can spend the time to understand why, why do you want to paint it red? And you, you give me this elaborate explanation of, you know, hey, it's this color that really energizes. It, it's, you know, something that's uh, associated with the, the brand that we have and this and that. And then I can, you know, with that, once you get that um, acknowledgement that, hey, Kisan's actually taking the time to understand why I think the way that I do, in turn, a lot of times you'd be more inclined to listen to my case in point. Yep. And I may find out, you know what, you actually, you're right. <laughs> I took the time to listen to you and then maybe change your views or you may me 
more uh, open to, to listening to what I have to say, and we, we can more likely come to terms and come up with something that agrees for both of us. That's a one skill that I truly think in that level should be taught to kids. Keyson Patel, the founder and CEO of Dealroom. It's been a pleasure spending the last 30 minutes with you. Wish you continued success. And I'll leave links to everything we've mentioned today in the show notes, wherever you're listening or watching this. But for now, we'll end the episode there. My pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. Hey,